Hello and welcome to another episode of the H is for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. Each episode brings you content on the human side of research, health, well-being and community. The H is for Human is sponsored by the legacy project of the Office of HIV AIDS Network Coordination, HANC. My name is Pedro Goicochea and I will be your host today. The Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections, CROI, is one of the most important scientific conferences on HIV and other infectious diseases. Traditionally, this annual conference is organized at the beginning of the year in either Boston or Seattle, although other cities like Denver, Quebec, and Los Angeles have also hosted it. CROI has been the stage for the presentation of outstanding research in prevention, therapeutics, and cure of HIV, and important scientists and researchers present results of their studies in this conference. This year marks the 30th anniversary of CROI and the first in-person meeting since 2019. CROI 2023 took place in Seattle, Washington, from February 12th to the 14th at the new Seattle Convention Center, with the participation of nearly 3,000 people from all over the world. To talk about CROI and the highlights of the conference, we have with us a long-standing and esteemed colleague, Jim Pickett. Thank you, Jim, for accepting this invitation to episode 12 of H equals H. It's great to have you here. And you visited us probably five episodes ago when you talk about desire and sexual pleasure and sexual health. And it was a really entertaining interview. And actually, <laughs> it had a lot of downloads in my podcast. But now what calls us today is this Margarita's Breakfast Club at CROI 2023. Thanks, Pedro, for having me and having me back for a second podcast. This is great. Um, so I'm currently a senior advisor with AVAC, which is a large global organization that does advocacy in support of new prevention technologies, implementation of those technologies, product introduction, etc. And I've been doing this work. I haven't been a senior advisor with them as long as I've been doing this work. I've been doing this work since probably the late 90s. And one of the things I'm currently also, one of the hats I'm wearing is I'm a member of the CROI Community Liaison Subcommittee. So I'm one of three people who help advise CROI and make sure CROI is engaging community members and bringing community voices into the conference and providing space for them. I know we're going to be talking more about CROI in a second, and I'll explain the Margarita Breakfast Clubs are webinars that we do every day before CROI starts. So it's before a CROI officially kicks off in the morning with the morning plenary. We take about the hour before and we do a webinar that's open to everyone. It's whether you're registered for the conference or not. So you can zoom in from anywhere you want, registered or not. And we feature scientists from the conference who are going to be presenting at the conference, interesting new data. And we provide an opportunity for more folks to hear about it, get involved, ask questions, and engage with scientists in a little more of an intimate setting. And the final thing I'll say about these, they used to be called just the breakfast clubs. And so this was a tradition for years at CROI. Um, they were in-person 
and there was breakfast involved. It also involved very early mornings in some random hotel room where we would pile people into the room and do the same thing in person. And we had to pivot during COVID. And that pivot led to us going online and going on Zoom and adding Margarita to the title because we recognize that there may be people Zooming in where it's five o'clock in the evening or midnight. So it's not breakfast everywhere in the world, but it's margarita time everywhere in the world. So we added margarita to it. And also to just, we wanted to give it a vibe of this is casual, this is fun, this is friendly. Croy can be a very intimidating experience. And so we wanted this snippet of Croy to be engaging and less stressful for people. And now that we're back in the real world, Croy went back to the real world this year in 2023, we kept the webinars, these breakfast clubs online, just because it's easier for people to access from everywhere. And even people at the conference who were there physically didn't complain about having to yet another hotel room, another meeting room. You're on roller skates during that conference. And if this is something you can do while you're still getting ready, having your coffee, putting on your shoes before you the rat race starts for the day, it's appealing. And it turned out really well. We had a lot of people show up every day. What is this conference and why community should be aware of what is going on in this conference? Who is this conference for? Yeah, it is a very important conference. I would argue, and I think others would argue with me, that it is the most important scientific conference in the HIV space. It's been happening for 30 years. The vast majority of people who go to this conference are active scientists or active academics who are in the space, working in the field. And uh, while HIV is very central, there is also science that is delivered there around hepatitis, tuberculosis. In the last couple of years, COVID has been added. This year, there were sessions on MPOX. So it does cover other viruses, but HIV is really central. And of course, we know that HIV is connected to all these other things too. So it's all pretty integrated. So the conference has been happening for 30 years and uh, it's incredibly focused on science. So it's intimidating because of that. The science can be very hard to digest. There are lots of sessions with 10-minute talks, with very dense slides, with lots of graphs and figures and numbers and percentages that go quickly. And you're in a room with hundreds of people, perhaps thousands of people. There's about up to 4,000 people go to Croy. So some rooms can be very big and you're hearing these things very rapid fire. And it's a lot to digest for anybody. It isn't just like, oh, it's hard to digest for community. It's hard to die. If you are not a basic scientist and you're in a basic science session, it can, and you're a scientist of some other sort, it can be very challenging for you. If you're not, if you're watching a session that's not directly in your field, I think it can be intimidating for everybody. And the reason why it's so important for community to be there is that community really needs to be leading the research agenda right? Nothing for us without us is the mantra. We've been saying this for decades and it applies to CROI and applies to the research presented at CROI. Distant researchers need to be taking their cues and their lead from community members. 
And we need to be working together on moving scientific agendas forward and then moving forward options and choices that come out the other end of the pipeline, like PrEP, like injectable PrEP, and make sure those things become reality for people and not just a hypothetical reality. So the engagement with community, I believe, is critical. What are the mechanisms that the conference facilitates for engagement of community? It's a great question. So one of them I've mentioned, the Margarita Breakfast Club, is a great way to connect. But officially, the conference has a program for community educator scholars. So every year, the conference supports up to 20, 25, it depends, community educator scholars from all around the world. And these are individuals who are working in community and who have been able to demonstrate to a very high level their ability to translate science from these complex dissemination you get at Croy, able to translate it, contextualize it, and make it understandable and accessible to the people that they work with in their community, wherever that community is um, across the world. And so every year, there's a community liaison subcommittee that is part of the overall scientific program planning committee. And I'm a member as well as Intando Yola and Don Abbott. And we look at all those scholarship applications. We score them. And then the top scores come. And this year we had something like 80 or 90, maybe close to 100 scholarship applications. We had 22 folks come. So it was incredibly competitive. The competition was really fierce this year. And it was also really exciting this year. We had, of the 22, 16 of our scholarship applicants had never been to Croy before. So they were new to Croy. And out of the 22, there were 16 different countries represented. So it was wide representation across the globe, and then a really good number of folks who were new to Croy. So tended to be younger and newer in their careers, newer on their path. And so that to me was really exciting. You participated in the conference. So can you share with us what the highlights from the conference are? Sure. Yeah. My focus is really always around HIV prevention research. And I know there was a lot of other interesting things that came out in the treatment space and in the cure space and MPOX and COVID. I'm not going to talk about those other things. There's a lot of really great highlights. You could talk to 10 different people and get a completely different highlight reel from each. But I think some of those things that I was really tracking on there was a couple of presentations around using doxycycline for PrEP to prevent STIs and using a vaccine to prevent gonorrhea. And so some really exciting news, particularly for gay men and other men who have sex with men, these uh, looked good, were shown to be safe and effective, highly effective. Um, it wasn't great news for cisgender women in terms of using doxycycline for PEP, for STIs. It didn't show great efficacy. So I think there's more work there to do for cis women. But having another biomedical prevention tool to support keeping people STI-free is incredibly exciting. There's a lot of work to do to kind of translate that into actual programs and get it 
on the ground as it were. But we've now had several studies showing that what we call doxypep is safe and effective and can really reduce STI burden, at least among gay men and other men who have sex with men. Jean Molina from France and others presented on these topics, some colleagues from San Francisco and the state of Washington as well. Another highlight that I had from my perspective of the conference was a study that was reported out. It's a small study, a phase one study. So a phase one that's just looking at safety. The study is called the safety and PKPD of a tenofovir alvitegravir insert administered rectally. So it's a insert with TAF and alvitegravir, those two drugs, in this little insert that's essentially a suppository. It's been tested very already for safety. And so they tested it rectally and it looked really good. And so the thought is that we could have another option that is used on demand. So, so many of our prep options require continuous adherence. Like if you're taking a pill, you need to take multiple pills a week. If you get a shot, you need to get a shot on an ongoing basis. And then you have systemic exposure to this drug and you're really committed to this drug. With this insert, this is something that you could use when you need it. You don't have a drug in your body when you don't need it. You would pop it in. Um, and what's really exciting about it is it could be popped up front or in back. So it could go in the vagina or the rectum and provide protection for the kind of sex you have. And I love that it could be this dual use because we know a lot of people with vaginas also have anal sex. And sometimes we forget that. It's a very human behavior, but we tend to say, oh, anal sex, we think of gay men and trans women, for instance. But half the population of the world are cisgender women, and there's a fair amount of anal sex going on. And they're also having vaginal sex. So how great to have an intervention that you could pop in either place and provide protection and not have to commit to taking drug every day or having drug in your body for a year at a time like we see with injectables, something that you just use it when you need it. Uh, and it could go in either place, both places. So it's still very early. It looked good in phase one safety. Now it needs to move forward in an expanded safety trial and continue to test this. We of course don't yet know if this would provide protection in humans. That kind of work is coming. But I, I want to highlight this study because we need to be thinking about early pipeline stuff as advocates. We need to be engaging with the scientists and the networks who are doing these studies to provide input in these early studies, to be involved from the beginning and help shape the direction they go. The scientists appreciate it a lot and community has a huge role to play even in really early science. And then Pedro, I think the last thing I'll highlight, and then we can chat about all of that. There was a session at the very end of the conference. It was literally on the last day, it was in the last hours of the conference, and it was called Science Communication in the Age of Misinformation, which is a highly relevant topic right now that we're all thinking about. And they had a number of really interesting talks diving into how information and misinformation and disinformation are spread, where misinformation and disinformation comes from, 
how to address it, how to debunk it. So some misinformation comes out and after the fact you work to debunk it and what are strategies to do that. We also, they also talked about pre-bunking. So getting ahead of the misinformation and addressing things that are before they're actually out in the world, which I think is really fascinating. So like pre-exposure prophylaxis for bad information. And then again, there was some interesting talk about the roots of where this comes from. And I think what's most daunting about this space is that for people for whom certain things resonate and align with their identity, with who they are and who they see themselves to be in the world, folks like that, if they are believing in misinformation, it's hard to sway them with facts. And in fact, facts may not help at all. Facts could actually push them further into their position because their position is so deeply aligned with who they see themselves to be, um, who they are, their identity. So I don't think we have great strategies yet to figure out how to address those deep roots where misinformation can come from. But it was a really interesting topic. I was really excited to see it at Croy. And I hope Croy in the future does more work like this that goes beyond biomedical science, beyond testing in animals and humans. And this sort of work is about how we actually make our healthcare systems work and be accessible and effective for people and that our interventions are used and not maligned. So I found that session a really interesting way to wrap up Croy this year. What, what are your recommendations for the community in terms of science misinformation um, or what came out as the conclusion yeah. or recommendations in that session? For sure. So first of all, I will say to your audience that all of these sessions um, will be available to the public starting March 22nd, March 23rd. So go to the website and you can look at anything, including this session. So you don't have to just take my word for it. I'm going to tell you what kind of stuck stood out for me. Um, but I recommend people check check all of this stuff out and dive deep. There's a lot of really, really good stuff that we're not going to get to talk about today. But in terms of some recommendations, I think uh, some of, some key ones when we're addressing misinformation or debunking information that's out there that's not correct. Um, it's to really think about the messenger. So who delivers that information is really, really important. And that um, those types of people can be different from community to community. And sometimes there is sort of a tag team approach. There are communities who want to hear from a medical professional. They um, uh, will believe a medical professional, but they also want to hear from someone who's maybe more like them someone who's more of a general, you know, not a provider, not an expert in the field, but someone who could be like their neighbor or, or a community person who is well-respected. Um, they want to hear from folks like that too. Um, I think when we are addressing folks who are holding on to things that are incorrect, uh, showing empathy, understand, trying to understand where they're coming from and not just saying, nope, that's wrong here's the facts and you got it wrong. Trying to understand and come to them from a place of understanding and empathy and hearing what they think and why they think it before you just sort of bombard them with, you know, 
the fixes to what, what they think. So an empathetic approach and acknowledging that a lot of this work requires, you know, it's more than one conversation and it requires work that is ongoing within community and within our, all of our efforts around trust. So building and sustaining trust, this is not something that's transactional. It's not something like, oh, we gotta build some trust today so we can cash in on that trust tomorrow. Trust is something we've been, you need to have been doing yesterday, many yesterdays ago, and you need to be doing it right now, and you need to be doing it tomorrow and forever onward. Like trust is not transactional, it's an ongoing thing. And the more you have um, institutions and organizations that are doing research and providing these new technologies to people um, who are also very much working on earning, earning, earning and sustaining trust, then you have a space where these conversations can happen and um, debunking can happen uh, in ways that um, won't work if there's dissonance between organizations and community, scientists and community, if there isn't that level of trust, a scientist coming out and, and giving correct facts and figures isn't gonna really help. Um, where I would like to see to learn more and where I don't think we got into deep enough was what I was talking about earlier are these, these roots. And when people, their political identities, their, uh, their social identities, the way they see themselves in the world um, become aligned with um, a certain worldview and things that they believe. We've seen this, this QAnon conspiracy thing that's been going on in the United States where you know, people really believe that John F. Kennedy Jr. was gonna come back and you know, save the country. And they just believe things that are not true but to tell them simply it's not true isn't going to work because it's really connected to their identity. So I think that requires a much more you know, nuanced and uh, deep approach. And I don't think the session got into it that much. Uh, the final thing I'll say, which I'm really excited about, um, called pre-bunking. So getting ahead of it like being aware of the kinds of things that could come out. Let's say we're gonna roll out DoxyPep uh, for STI prevention. And we know from our COVID experience, from HIV experience, from all the things we've learned about in vaccine research, HIV and otherwise, um, what kinds of things people can um, grab onto and run with that aren't correct. And so to get ahead of that, uh, and help people um, get tools to sift through things, sift through things that maybe look very factual. It's a YouTube video with people in white coats looking very professional, saying things that sound like they could be real, but trying to figure, you know, getting the tools to figure out uh, separating uh, fact from fiction. And uh, I think there's a lot of more work to be done in the pre-bunking space, but I'm super excited about you know, all the efforts that are underway. Um, once sort of the proverbial, you know, cow is out of the barn, it's hard to get that cow or the, or the horse back in there. Um, how do we keep it in there in the first place? And that's what uh, pre-bunking is about. Thank you for that. There are a couple of topics that I would like your insights on, and that sure. is oral prep and women. 
Uh, Thank you. After that, probably your own opinion on the future of HIV vaccines after mosaico outcomes. For sure. Thank you. And I'm glad you brought up oral prep and women. So Dr. Jean Marazzo did this huge analysis of demonstration projects. So not clinical trials, but demonstration projects from around the world where women were coming forward to take oral prep. So oral Truvada, generic Truvada, depending on the setting. And we have long been told that cisgender women uh, must take seven pills a week or at the minimum six to get full protection, which is a very high bar to adherence. And that's been the drumbeat for a long time. The CDC right now still has guidance that says women, cisgender women, people with vaginas need to take oral prep for three weeks before there's enough sort of drug on board for protection. Dr. Morazzo's study was able to show that as little as four pills a week could provide substantial protection for people with vaginas and for cisgender women. So that's a very different message. And again, these demo projects involved over 6,000 women. It's a session that you should definitely look at online. I know when it was over, I ran up and just had to hug her because I was thought this so important. We've been all, our whole field, and when I say we, the royal we, all of us, have been too quick to dismiss oral prep for cis women to say, oh, it just doesn't work. Oh, no one will adhere like that. Forget about it. And this research really turns that on its end in a great way. And I think we need to make a lot of out of this. We need to really run with this and make sure that cis women the world over know that this is a really solid option for them. Um, if you're not a fan of shots, the future could be implants, right, for HIV prevention. Not everyone wants an implant or a shot. People don't like shots or are scared of shots. If taking a pill is more your thing, you can get really good protection and you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be seven pills a week, every week until the end of time. I think those are really important messages. And I hope this helps us change guidance from the CDC, for instance, that again, still says, cis women, you need to take 21 days before protection. That's a real deal breaker, right? For a lot of people. I, I'm not going to protect you for 21 days. That's a lot of ramping up. So throws it out of the water. We'll see what happens. But I'm really committed to helping get the news out about that. So the Mosaico trial, we had already heard before Croy, we got more details at Croy, but we had already heard before Croy that it didn't work. It wasn't efficacious. It didn't cause harm, which is good, but it didn't work. That's another study that the vaccine field has had that tried something and it hasn't worked. So my perspective on going forward, I think we still absolutely, I want to be 100% clear, we need to still support vaccine research. Vaccines are important. But I also want to say we need to be looking at how the dollars are spent and where the dollars are going and make shifts if necessary. We know that we're a long ways away from a vaccine. We're not a long ways away from some of these other tools and we have tools in the field right now. So we need to be thinking about that. And we also need to remember that even when a vaccine comes out, if it's safe and effective, 
it's not going to be 100%. It'll likely be in the 50 to 60% range. So this vaccine will need to be aired and other things added to it, that the vaccine will be part of a combination approach. So we need to be investing in these other combinations. And I think some research that we're doing is underinvested in. I think we underinvest in strategies that can be used at the time of sex, so on demand, that don't have systemic exposure to the drug, that can be delivered by the person themselves. You don't have to go to a clinic to put in your insert. You just do it yourself when you want to. We need that array of options. Not everyone will want to do that. So we need the things that are delivered in the clinic. We need things delivered at home by the person. We need things that have systemic exposure and last for a long time. We need things that last for just a day or two and don't have systemic exposure. We really want to provide choices for people that are real legitimate choices and that meet them where they're at. So I use this moment to do two things. We need to continue to support vaccine research. We're learning a lot and it's been incredibly helpful for the whole field. But we also need to just think about our investments and look at where we're under-investing. And we need things like that TAF, Elbitagravir insert to be invested in. We need things like a rectal douche that is moving forward into phase two now. We need, which is also something used on demand and at home, your doctor isn't giving you the douche, you're giving yourself the douche, which is awesome. We need to have resources put behind these studies and this research so we can develop those tools and have those as part of our prevention buffet. So that's my little spiel on, on all of that. <laughs> that sounds great, actually. That I was going to ask you for your final remarks, but I think that you have already included your final remark. So, Jim, thank you so much for your time and for coming to this new episode of H equals H. And we would love to have you again. Yes. And oh, could I say one thing, Pedro? And I would sure. love to come back anytime. If you invite me to the opening of an envelope, I'll be there. And certainly your podcast. One of the things I do with AVAC is we have this project called the Choice Agenda which consists of two things, a global listserv with now over 1,200 people, where we're talking about this science all the time and sharing input from all around the world. And then paired with that listserv um, are a series of monthly webinars where we dig into all of this different stuff. We recently did one in the decolonization of public health and dismantling white supremacy and racism. We've done stuff on doxypep. We've done stuff on cabotegravir long-acting. In the future, we have things coming up on the dual prevention pill and other multipurpose technologies. I'm talking to Dr. Marazzo right now about having her come on and talk about the study that I talked about earlier. She'll do it much better than me. So if folks are interested, they can check out the Choice Agenda on the AVAC website and get hooked into what we're doing there. And what is the AVAC website? It's avac.org slash choice dash agenda. So if you type in avac.org backslash choice hyphen agenda, you will come to our page and you can see um, resources from previous webinars. We record everything and share the slides. And you can also sign up for webinars that are on the docket. Like we have one 
coming up on March 23rd, which is a recap of Croy, basically. Been there, did that. Reflections on Croy Science 2023. Love for people to come to that. We're also doing one on MPOX the end of March. And if you go to the site, you can see the links to register. And if you sign up for the listserv, which you'll do by linking to me, you'll see a link on the site that sends me an email. I'll add you personally. And, and then you get all this information in your email as well. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Jim. And this was another episode of The Issues for Human. Do not forget to subscribe and share podcast with your acquaintances, colleagues, friends, and family. And with me, it will be until next time in a new episode of The Issues for Humans, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV.